Romans chapter 6. I'll read the entire chapter, but our focus will be on the first 11 verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed, freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together once more. Our Father, as we have read your word, we ask now that you would enable us to understand it as, it as it is explained, that Christ would grow ever more precious in our eyes, that we would remember with more regularity and frequency who we are as those who have been baptized with him into his death and unto resurrection life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Who are you? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about introducing yourself to someone? 
various aspects of who you are, various momentous occasions that have happened to you in your life might be the thing that comes to mind that is going to shape how you give your answer. And so your first thought might be, well, I'm from Ohio. Or I'm married. I'm, I'm not somebody who is single, but I have somebody who has been uh, married to my wife. Or perhaps it's one's job. I'm an engineer, or I'm an architect. Or I am a graduate of the Ohio State University. Or perhaps you might think to say that first and foremost in introducing myself, I am a Christian. This is Paul's line of thought, or this is Paul's response as he is dealing with a question as he is explaining the gospel to the Romans, the gospel of grace. He uh, thinks first of the identity of the Romans as Christians, as those who have been baptized into Christ. In the context, Paul has described how the reign of grace is more abundant than the reign of sin in death. But he anticipates an objection. Does that mean that we can go on sinning? If God's grace forgives sin, in fact, if God's grace abounds more and more where there is sin abounding, shall we not continue in sin, abound in sin, so that grace might abound all the more as well? And as Paul seeks to cut off this line of thinking, he goes to who the Romans are, he goes to who you are, and he specifically goes to your baptism. That as he thinks about who you are, the first thing that comes into his mind is that you are baptized into Christ. So even... If we think of introducing ourselves as a Christian, how often, though, is it that we think of ourselves specifically as a baptized Christian, as one who has been baptized into Christ? Hello. Nice to meet you. Who are you? Well, the name my parents gave me is, is James, but the name that God gave me at my baptism is his own name that he has placed upon me to mark me out as his own. So we are considering baptism this morning and what it means for you and how it explains who you are. As we think about this larger series that we have been doing in the evening as it relates to the body, we will, Lord willing, develop that idea later, that who you are, you are one who has been baptized, why have you been baptized? One of the reasons that we'll see in Romans 6 is so that sin might not reign in your mortal body. But that last part will be for later. Presently, consider simply, first of all, this morning, who are you? You are one who has been baptized into Christ. To be baptized into someone is to be made after their likeness, to be patterned after them. In 1 Corinthians, we read that Israel was baptized into Moses. And so the life of Moses became the pattern for the life of the nation of Israel. Moses was drawn up out of waters at his birth. 
Moses spent 40 years, he exited Egypt and then spent 40 years in Midian and in the wilderness. And then Israel, as baptized into Moses, is patterned after that. Israel is drawn up through the waters. And Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness. But you have been baptized into Christ. So Christ is the pattern for you. Christ's death and his resurrection is now the pattern for who you are and what you experience. So we will consider this morning, as many of you as have been baptized, you are to regard yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are to regard yourselves as baptized into Christ. Regard yourselves as baptized into his death and into his resurrection. So as we look at the text, in verses 3 and 4, we have a, a development of this main idea that is going to be unpacked throughout the rest of of the section of our our sermon text, but sort of a a compact statement of of containing in at least C form everything that Paul is going to want to unpack in the following verses. Consider verses 3 and 4 as a summary. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So there you have uh, both elements of participation with Christ in death and in resurrection life. And those ideas will be developed throughout the the remaining verses of our sermon text. Uh, And so let's consider those two aspects then of what it means to be baptized into Christ. Into his death but also sharing with him in that resurrection life. So two points this morning. Fellowship with Christ in his death through baptism. We see this uh, underscored, this this participation, this fellowship with Christ in his death is really underscored in verses 3 and 4, and then in verses 5 through 7 as well. Look with me at the text and see how much this is emphasized. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. In verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him, or we have been co-buried with Christ through baptism into death. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Following on verse 6, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, or our old self was co-crucified with Christ. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, and so over and over and over again, you see Paul describing the, those who have been baptized with Christ as having a fellowship, as having been with him in his death. of our union with Christ. The experience of the believer in sanctification 
is, is what Christ has experienced and that we too have a share in that. And what was the purpose of Christ's death? What was the purpose of co-crucifixion? Verse 6. In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The purpose of death with Christ is so that the body of sin may be abolished, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. As we continue to think about the body, uh, some have described it as that place where sin finds its scope and realm of activity. That sin, considered as a power, seeks to uh, use and co-opt a body for wickedness. And it's the body, it's that old fleshly condition, not as created, but as created and fallen, that sin finds a, its, its scope, its sphere of operation, in which it produces wickedness and then ultimately death. The body is the special seat and stronghold of sin, says another. And the purpose of this co-crucifixion is to do away with that stronghold. That if sin finds a stronghold in the body, if, if sin has a, a, cat, a castle that it has erected in the body, that body must be destroyed. Now that was the purpose of co-crucifixion with Christ. To break the reigning power, to abolish the body of sin. And so that we might no longer serve sin. Sin is later portrayed as a master in, a, in this chapter. And service to that master is terminated when that master pays its wages. But the wages that sin as a slave master pays is death. So that those who die are not able to go on sinning, but because dead. Sin can no longer use the body as an occasion for more sin. Sin can no longer use the body as an instrument for further unrighteousness. But that's because the body is without life altogether. And it's this power of sin over the body that we are to regard ourselves as having died to through our baptism into Christ's death. That Christ himself, as we will read later, uh, brings an end to our existence in this sphere where sin and death reign and dominate. And your participation in that is through through the grace of baptism. Not apart from faith, not as though a baptism of itself wrought this, but as that, that token and pledge, as that, so to speak, that, that wedding ring that accompanies our espousal to Christ to guarantee and to give us a, a tangible token of what is ours in Christ. Participation with Christ brings about a death to that old sphere in which sin and death reign and dominate. Continuing on to 
our second point into Christ's resurrection, we see here a, a, a shift now in an emphasis on Christ's life, his resurrection from the dead. In verse 4b, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then verses 8 through 11, now if we have died with him, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not only do we have fellowship with Christ in his death, but we have fellowship with him in his resurrection. Resurrection, by definition, presupposes that a death has first taken place. And so to participate in Christ's resurrection, there must be first that participation in his death. And that is what we have experienced by God's grace, represented to us, communicated to us, given us as a sign and as a seal in baptism. We have that participation when it is when the grace of baptism is present, received by faith. And so we now share in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Now you might look at yourself, you might look at your calendar and see that you have a doctor's appointment coming up next week or in a month, and you might say, well, how, how is it that I am presently participating somehow in Christ's resurrection? After all, my body is still decaying. Look again at verse 4 and, and notice the, the logic of, of how Paul reasons here. Therefore, we have been buried with him through, Christ, uh, through baptism into death, participation in death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, you might expect the text to say something else. You might expect it to say that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might be raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. But it says, so that we might walk in newness of life. That there's a parallel that is being drawn here between Christ's resurrection from the dead and then this moral renewal within the Christian, within the baptized person. Well, where's the point of, of unity? How are, those, how are those the same thing in Paul's thought? Or how are they at least related, closely linked together in Paul's thought? The Spirit of God, the glory by which Christ was raised from the dead, is the principle of both. It is the glory Spirit who raises Christ from the dead, and it's the glory spirit who transforms you, unites you to Christ, and now works in you that moral, ethical renewal. And so you now have that same resurrection spirit dwelling in you. That resurrection is begun in a certain respect already in you because you have the resurrection spirit. Because Christ, who has been raised from the dead, 
has sent his spirit who is in you and who's already giving you that new life presently. To come to bodily expression outwardly in the resurrection at the last day, but already operative within you as you are sanctified day by day. So participation in Christ's resurrection necessitates moral renewal. Because moral renewal and resurrection from the dead both have the Holy Spirit as their author. So consider that you have fellowship with Christ in his death and in his resurrection life. Consider what what this means for you by considering first what this means for Christ. In verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ died a death to sin? What are we to make of such a statement? We all affirm the sinlessness of Christ. That Christ did not sin and could not have sinned because he was God incarnate, come in the flesh, that he was perfectly righteous. And yet we read that he died to sin. Christ did have a relationship to sin, though it was not a relationship that touched his will or his affections. But he did enter into humanity. He did take on a reasonable soul and and a flesh, a, a body like ours. And he was in that realm, in that mode of life, that mode of existence where sin was able to manifest its dominion by producing death in bodies. And also in that he had a body that was able to relate to sin as the one who had taken our sins upon himself. Consider what the New Testament has to say about Christ's relationship to sin. Again, none of this is sin that touches his will or his affections, but as the one who has our sins reckoned to him. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those eagerly waiting for him. So there's a relation to sin in his first appearance, to bear the sins of many. But a second time he will appear, because he has died to sin, he will appear without reference to sin. Or consider that Peter says, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or consider what Paul says, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
So a, a relationship to sin, not as one personally sinful, but as one who is able to carry our sins, one who is able to have our sins reckoned to him, and then to suffer the consequences, the curse of such sins, bodily, and in the anguish of soul. As he died, that death, which is described specifically as a cursed death, because hanged on a tree. That whole realm and relationship which Christ at one point sustained to sin as the one who had sin reckoned to him is now dead and gone. That there is no longer any further claim or dominion on the sins that were reckoned to Christ made against him. There is no sin where sin is able to say, oops, you forgot one. One of your, one of your members, one, one who belongs to you, you forgot this one. Now you have to go die again. Totally dead to the realm of sin, such that sin considered as a power that produces death no longer has anything to do with Jesus. And now he lives a life to God. And didn't he live a life to God before he died? Didn't he live a life to God before he was raised? What are we to make of this? To consider that the life that Jesus now lived in his even according to his human nature, is immediately within the presence of God, a permanent residing before the Father with perfect, uninterrupted fellowship, even according to his human nature. That there is no more cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that at the cross, but he cries it no more. He has gone to the Father. He has entered into the presence of the Father and there lives in immortality, in permanence before him without any reference to the realm of sin. And wouldn't you like to go with him to that place? Wouldn't you like to be able to say, yes, I, 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 am, I have exited completely this realm where sin dominates, where sin has a... a foothold, a, a stronghold in my body, it has a beachhead, and where it's producing death, I would like to live a life to God where there is uninterrupted communion and fellowship with him, where the joy that was set before Jesus is a joy that I also enjoy, having passed from death and sin to life to God. In baptism, Jesus has taken you with him. You're already there. You are so much Christ's. And Christ is so much yours. That by your baptism, believing, believing what's depicted in baptism, consider that this is really the case for you. That because you belong to Christ, because he is no longer living with reference to sin, that he is in the presence of the Father. This is true also 
of you because you belong so much to him, that you have been baptized into him, that you are patterned after him as you are following in the model that God presented to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So at a later time, we will consider the moral imperative that soon follows after this. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. If this is true of you, if you have been baptized into his death, if you are dead to sin with Christ, if you are alive to God, sin must not reign in your mortal body. You must not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. But for this morning, simply reckon yourselves as such. Reckon yourself as one baptized into Christ. Reckon yourself as one who has died with Christ. Reckon yourself as one who has, made, has been made alive together with Christ. And consider your baptism. Remind yourself that, that this is the, the promise that is presented to you in baptism. That these things are true, that you have a share in Christ who has left, who has died to sin, and is now living to God in glory. How do you think about your baptism? Or how often do you think about your baptism? Is it that giant billboard right outside your neighborhood that is always uh, right there, always reminding you that it's there? Or is your baptism that old index card that's been filed away in the back of a filing cabinet that you're probably never going to see unless you uh, go clean out the office but once every couple of years? Consider that you have been baptized. Consider that you have a share in Jesus Christ. You have fellowship with him in his death and in his resurrection. And let this be how you begin to consider yourself. What is true of you before all else? This, I belong to Christ. I've been baptized into Christ. I have been baptized into his death. I've been raised from the dead with him. This is who I am. I am one who has had the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit placed on me for the forgiveness of sins. I have been washed in the water symbolizing that pardon. A, a final word, though, for those in the congregation who may have some doubts or questions about baptism. If baptism is what... Paul says here is, is the way that we participate with Christ in his death and resurrection, perhaps concerns begin to plague the minds of some. What about that child who was not able to be baptized uh, before the child died? Or what about uh, that adult who asks, was I baptized as a child? And the best answer that can be given from relatives with a, a living memory is, oh, I'm sure that you were. I remember that 
and your siblings were, although I don't remember that you were, there's that cloud of uncertainty. Did it really happen? Am I really crying? The centuries past offer uh, wisdom and, and guidance on this question. One writer says, Conversion may indeed exist where baptism has not been received, but not where it has been held in contempt. That there may be conversion, regeneration, where baptism has not been received, but not where one says, I don't need it. No, thank you. I don't need to be washed in the name of Christ. I don't need that cleansing that comes from him. I don't need to die to that realm of sin. I don't need to be made to live again to God in, in a new life, but rejected and held in contempt. But also the flip side of that. I've been baptized, and so I'm going to continue in sin that grace may abound. The baptism covers everything, even though there's not that inward trust. Consider another statement to paraphrase our confession. Although it is a great sin to disdain or neglect baptism, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably attached to it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it. Connection is not so close that it's impossible for salvation for those who haven't been baptized. But also, it's not so inseparably attached that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. There must be that looking to the promise of the gospel depicted in his word, in the gospel message, and as also visibly preached in the sacrament of baptism. And so for those who have these kinds of doubts and concerns, what about that child? Or what about me? Look to the substance of baptism. Look to your Savior and receive that washing. And consider yourself as baptized into Christ by faith as one who is dead to sin and alive to God. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we do thank you for that washing and cleansing that is ours in baptism. We thank you for this token and pledge of assurance. And we ask that you would enable us to reckon ourselves as having a share in Christ, that this would more and more be how we think, so that as we think this way, we would be more and more enabled to die unto sin, to not present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather present our members as instruments to righteousness to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.